that scene in uh, Rocky where Mickey says to, to Rocky, you done good, kid, you done good, right? And uh, it's a challenge. We see all throughout Scripture this call to doing good. My mom used to say to me, be good. And she had another idea in mind, I think. She had the idea of, like, behave yourself. Anyone, anyone get told by their parents, be good? I tell my kids that now. It doesn't seem to work at all. But I think when Jesus says be good or do good, he has something else in mind. Scripture calls us to this life of goodness, this life of goodness overflowing out of us, where we are people of blessing. Apostle Paul reminds us, let us never grow tired. Let us never grow weary in doing what? In doing good. We're called to that. Why? Why is doing good so important? Uh, let me offer a few quick reasons. First, it's what we were made for. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it's kind of a key passage in the New Testament. It says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These verses, they make it really clear that we are not saved by our good works. We are saved for good works. We were formed to do good, uh, we're told, right from the very beginning of creation. It was God's idea that we'd have good works that we're called to do. And when we do good works, we kind of line up with how we were made. We line up with how the universe really works. Thirdly, or secondly, I should say, skip two, would have made it faster. But secondly, it's the work of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus didn't just announce the kingdom of God. He actually demonstrated the kingdom of God. He, he fed the hungry. He healed the sick. Uh, he, he ministered to the lonely. He blessed the children. When we do these things, we're participating in the, in the kingdom of God come here and now. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Thirdly, it's what the world is looking for. Todd, Todd Hunter said that Christ, uh, most people, the world isn't asking whether Christianity is true. They're asking, is Christianity good? Is it good? I, quite honestly, people are tired of, of hearing us just talk about the good news. They want us to be the good news to our communities and our world. And here's the best part. When, uh, when we do good, I, I'd, I'd say life is good. It's just good to live this way. Dave Workman, he's a pastor of a church in, in Cincinnati, and uh, he— They've taken the challenge of doing good in their community really seriously, and they've gotten really creative about, about it and, and done it in some cool ways. But listen to what an email that he got from a young man in his church who just recently had become a Christian. This is what this uh, uh, guy wrote in his email. He says, Today was fun. He says, It was a normal work day in most senses, but I decided to do things a little differently. It was time to start serving people in the name of the Lord. I went to the pop machine, and I began purchasing some cans of pop. I rubber-banded a, a card from my church to, to each soda and placed them back in the dispenser slot. And then after I secretly placed the cans in the dispenser, I went on my daily routine. I couldn't help but spy a little and, and check back. I saw a woman who looked like she was having a bad day. She grabbed one of the free pops from the machine, and she began reading the card. This is to let you know that God loves you. She looked as if she'd been just thrown a life preserver. I, I felt a lump in my throat and had to turn away. He goes on to say, I noticed today that this is more addictive than crack cocaine. I wonder how he knew. I, I, I couldn't wait to do more and more of it. I, I ran up to the grocery store, and I set a Connect card and a quarter 
on every gumball machine. By the t- <laughs> I just love the ideas. My, my kids love those gumball machines. They would probably just go to each one and take each card. And, but I, by the time he says I was leaving the store, there was only one card left. I feel like I'm on fire. I can't wait for the outreach on Saturday. This is the life Jesus promises, that when we do good, life is good. And Jesus lays out uh, this call to goodness in one of the most well-known parables in Scripture. Uh, we, we find it in Luke 10, 25 to 37. I want us this morning to unpack it again, not looking so much for new information. You guys know this story, but looking for it to challenge us again in this area of doing good in our world. So we're going to read this together. You can open your Bibles there if you like, or it's on the screen. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, what a great story. I, I think I can remember when I actually first heard that story. I, I got a chance to tell it uh, to a bunch of Cub Scouts a few years ago. I was there as a minister uh, sharing a little bit about the Christian faith to them as part of one of their badge requirements. And I told them the story of the Good Samaritan, and get this, most of the kids had never heard the story of the Good Samaritan, and it was like they were sitting on the edge of the seat waiting to hear what would happen. I mean, it's a a great story. I mean, the story has bandits and and danger. There's a half-dead guy in it. There's, There's all this treachery and drama and this daring rescue. But it's a, it's a powerful story for other reasons. Um, the setup of the story is key. This expert in the law is testing Jesus, but he gets caught in his own trap. He asks, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus often answered questions with questions. He says, how do you read it? This would be easy for the man to answer because he probably, literally, carried the answer on his wrist in what was called a phylactery that had scriptures from Deuteronomy in it that, that told him what the answer was. And The answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, a a passage from Leviticus. And so love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus affirms his answer. He says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But listen to the next line, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
this lawyer, this uh, expert, I think he was left feeling a little bit uncomfortable here. You see, loving God is kind of nebulous. I mean, it's not very concrete. Anybody can say they love God. You know, God and me, we tights. You know, I, I pray, I go to church, I, I believe um, uh, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a really spiritual person. I hear that a lot. And, and it, but it, all those things are pretty subjective. How do you measure those things? But loving one's neighbor is, is actually way more concrete. And, and the expert, the good philosopher he was, he, he tries to redirect with a very general question, who, well, who is my neighbor? tries to justify himself because he knew in his heart of hearts that he loved himself more than he loved him, his neighbor. Jesus responds with this brilliant story, a story which would resonate in the hearts of every listener who would, would hear it probably for the rest of their lives. We know the story is the, the Good Samaritan, um, but the, the, the phrase Good Samaritan actually doesn't show up in this text. Uh, words Good Samaritan, for those listening to Jesus, that would have been an oxymoron. Something like jumbo shrimp, or uh, a little pregnant, or that's awfully good, or, or government organization, right? Good and Samaritan, they just didn't go together in the minds of the people of that day, that the Jews in that culture. Dallas Willard comments that, that for the Jews generally at that time, they might say that the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. Jesus, uh, if he was to tell the story in modern-day Israel, he probably would have told the story of the good Palestinian. Or for the Palestinian, he might have said the story of the good Israeli. The story itself is of a man who's traveling from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, 27 kilometers downhill through some pretty barren country, uh, a treacherous stretch of road. And thieves grab hold of this guy. They, they beat him almost to death. They, they strip him, and they abandon They leave him there for dead. Who knows how long he's been lying there, uh, bleeding, maybe in a coma, when along comes a priest. And you can almost hear the, uh, the sigh of relief from the listeners of Jesus telling the story. A priest has come. Who better than a man of God to come and rescue and save the day? Or to modernize, Jesus might have said, along came a firefighter. Those are who we look to today, probably. But in fact, what does the priest do? He actually skirts to the other side of the road, and he walks on, avoiding the man in his peril. The tension increases when a Levite comes along. A Levite would have been an elder or a deacon in the temple. And uh, let's say, probably in modern day, maybe a paramedic. But he, was, he comes along to the same place, and what does he do? He also skirts along and goes uh, on, his, on his merry way. You see, to these men, this, this fellow was, was not their neighbor. They didn't even know him. He was a, a stranger. They had no responsibility for him. Now, along comes the despised half-breed, the, the Samaritan. For Jews, hearing that the Samaritan has arrived, that the true villain of the story has come on the scene, and they're waiting for him to kind of pick the pockets of whatever's left, you know, picking up the scraps. In their eyes, Samaritans were bad. They were pagans. They were far from God. Not an ounce of goodness or spirituality in them. But as one scholar observes of this story, that the key to this man, as, as is also true of, of the Levite and, and the priest, is his heart. Because at the mere sight of this bloodied and wounded victim, what does it do? It immediately filled him with pity. You know, moved by his heart, he rushes to perform first aid on, on, on the man. But he doesn't just do the, 
the minimum and offer his cell phone to make a call for an ambulance. He, he loads him in his early model SUV, a mule or a donkey, and uh, takes him to an inn. And then he proceeds to care for him night and day. And the next morning he hires the innkeeper to continue to care for him and promises to pay any payment needed, promises to return. I mean, this almost happened uh, literally to a hillsider a couple weeks ago. Um, they were telling me how they were uh, in a downtown Canadian city, and, and uh, they were driving along, and they saw a body in the street. And, and that's frightening at any time. They, they, they immediately pulled over, and they, they thought this was absolutely strange lying there. And they hopped out of their vehicles, and um, they, they proceeded to, to, to go to the, turned out to be a man, and he was passed out drunk, lying there on the road. And so they actually were able to, to get him up and, and, and get him standing on the side of the street, and uh, they were caring for him. They called for paramedics. It ended up being a, about a 45-minute experience, from what, I, from what I understand. And in their experience, there, uh, the, the guy began uh, interacting with them, and he, and, and he said these words to him. I think, think they'll probably remember for the rest of their lives, you've got yourself into a situation, haven't you? <laughs> I would say they had. <laughs> a pretty good one from a Christian point of view. Very, very cool. Showing the love of God in a very real way. Jesus, in his storytelling, he finishes, wraps up the story, and then he drives the point of the story home with the question, which of those three was a neighbor to the man? And the only answer the expert could give is the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus leaves him with the words, go and do likewise. And I would say this morning, you know, those words, those last words, go and do likewise, kind of echo down through the ages. And I think they're meant for you and I today. Go and do likewise. Show mercy. Love your neighbor. It's, it's not enough to just love God. Loving God is, is, is key. It's, it's kind of ground zero. But, but to, to God, nothing can substitute for loving God. In, in a concrete way, it's the proof that we do love him is how we treat other people. So, so who is our neighbor? That, that's maybe our question today, too. And according to Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy, he suggests that that ought not to be the question here. He suggests a, a redefinition of, of neighbor, not defining our neighbor by a certain class of people, not, not by people who live next door or those who are in the neighborhood. Rather, we define who our neighbor is. We, we define who our neighbor is by our love. You know, we, we make a neighbor by of someone by caring for him or her. You see, Jesus rejects the question, who is my neighbor, and substitutes the only question that is, is really relevant here, to whom will I be a neighbor? And, and he knows that we can, we can only answer this question on a case-by-case -case basis as we go through our day. In the morning, we don't yet know who our neighbor will be that day. Who determines who our neighbor is? Well, Willard says that it's our heart. The conditions of our heart will determine who along our path turns out to be our neighbor, and our faith in God will largely determine whom we have strength enough to make our neighbor. Condition of our hearts. Let's uh, just say for a moment that, that we too can be like that Samaritan. <laughs> I mean, we can be moved uh, and sacrificial in our compassion and step in and engage, but I, I'd say we can also find ourselves being a little bit like that priest or that Levite boldly walking by. And the question I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning is how do we cultivate 
hearts of mercy and compassion? How do, how do we move from stepping around the needs of, of those around us to, to entering into their difficulties? And so we're going to take some time to kind of look at four suggestions for living this out. First is this. Do what you can and give what you got. Do what you can and give what you got. Start with where you are. Sometimes we're, we're just paralyzed by inaction. We, we think our little can't actually do anything. With, with all the overwhelming problems that people have, we often think, what good will this little act of kindness do? I, I wonder if you've ever heard of St. Martin's. Yeah, St. Martin or, or Martin Timmons lived in what is now Hungary 1,700 years ago in, in the 3rd century. And I, at age 15, he was drafted by Constantine into the Roman army. Story goes that it was a bitterly cold day in Gaul, and he came across a, a beggar who was naked and, and cold. And Martin, a Christian, took out his, his sword and actually slashed his military cloak in two and gave half to the beggar. And uh, that night, while, while sleeping under his half cloak, Jesus came to Martin in a dream, wearing the other half and commending Martin for his mercy. When you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it also unto me. You, you know, if we really believe that our actions towards the least of these was, was an action unto Jesus, those little things we do would become far more meaningful. Every time somebody gives a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, it's a powerful thing. You know, to the little boy, uh, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, that story, what little boy who gave Jesus his lunch, it was just a lunch. But not, it's not just a lunch when God is in it. God, God can take a, a, a cup of water and, and bless it and kind of sanctify it and kind of anoint it almost and, and cause it to be a blessing to the world far disproportionate to your gift. That's what your little words of kindness and your little actions of goodness can do in our world because God can take it and when you do it in his name, he can, can change the world through it. I, I, I like Bishop Desmond Tutu, his perspective on this. He says this. He says, do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. I love it. So start where you are. Do what you can. Give what you got. Secondly, listen to the leading of God's Spirit. Pay attention to God's whispers. Um, as a pastor leader, I sometimes get overwhelmed by opportunities for good. Uh, perhaps maybe a disproportionate amount of opportunities come my way in some senses. I have to, actually, we, we, I talk with other pastors and I say, just remember, pastors are people too. We say that. You gotta, you know, you, you gotta say no to some things. And so I, I when it comes to, to doing good, I, I have kind of two filters that I've found that have been helpful for me. Uh, aside from the fact that I'm in a family that holds me accountable, I'm in a community that holds me accountable for, for not burning out and, uh, and overdoing it. But I have kind of two filters. My, my primary call is to live out of who God made me to be, to live according to my wiring. And so a, a lot of my acts of goodness in the world are, are going to be in keeping with my personality and keeping with the abilities I have, with my experience, and so, for instance, if, if I uh, am very comfortable with encouraging, uh, part of my doing good in the world is going to probably look a lot like encouragement. Um, it's probably not going to look a lot like auto mechanic stuff because, you know, I'm not so strong on that, although I can, with the best person out there, 
open the hood of my, my car and, and nod and stroke my beard and look smart. I can do that, and I can point to it and, and yet, you know, not know what I'm doing. So, so a majority of the good that we're called to do, it, the, the good that you're called to do, is going to flow out of who God made you to be. And so you can be at peace about that. You don't have to do everything, but what God has gave you, I mean, we're back to the point one, right? Give what you got. And so use that, how God has made you, and, and do that. But the second filter is actually following God's lead, which trumps what you have. Because he can sometimes lead you into, into places where you have nothing, and you don't know what you're doing. And I, I've, I've stopped to help people with their car and been amazed how somehow I managed not to electrocute myself as I was charging their batteries. But you're following the Spirit's lead. And so, for instance, this, um, this Thursday, uh, Thursday for me is a writing day. I, I sit and actually, it's a day I dedicate to study and to, to preparing messages for Sunday, like I did this week. And this last Thursday, I'm, I'm working in my office at home, which turns out to be my bedroom. I got a laptop on my lap, and I get a phone call. And typically, I would, I would not even answer the phone on those days, but I get a phone call, and I look at it, and I'm going, I think I should take this. And uh, it's a friend who I've been praying for and really concerned for lately. And this friend called me up, and they said, listen, uh, we're in the neighborhood. I'm wondering if my girlfriend and I could pop over for a while. And in my spirit, I knew God wanted them there. And so I, I still had a lot of work to do. And I was going, this is inconvenient. But I decided to put God's spirit over my job list at that point in time. They came over and... and uh, coolest conversation I've had in the last couple months, I'd say, because all they wanted to talk about the whole time was Jesus. And we sat out in my back deck, and we talked about Jesus, and I, these, these two aren't Christians, but they wanted to talk about Jesus. And uh, so, when we follow God's lead, lead one, um, it gives you permission to sometimes drop what you're doing, but two, it, it actually, it can be more fruitful when you're following where he wants to lead. There's a, kind of an open door that he's created for you to actually do good in those moments. So, Pay attention. I, I, I believe each of us need to grow in our capacity. We don't have to do everything, but we can do something, and it can be more effective if we're walking in step or keeping in step with the Spirit. Is that, is that clear? Good. Thirdly, ask God to make you merciful. This is probably the biggest one. If, as Dowd Willard says, it's the condition of our heart that will determine with, <laughs> who along our path turns out to be our neighbor— if our heart condition is that important, then we probably need from time to time to do a heart check. Like, am I being merciful right now? And, and, and you just need to ask a question. How do I respond to people who are in, in need or in distress? Um, I've told you before that, that uh, for me, one of the checks for this is, is uh, what happens when you hear an ambulance go by. Are you moved at all in your heart by the fact that somebody is probably going through something really difficult in our community? And if, if you, you couldn't really give a rip as the ambulance goes by, maybe there's something not so great or aligned with God in your heart right then. I, that's a measure that I use, and somebody took me up on that and that challenge last time, and, and every time now they, they hear an ambulance, they pause and they say a prayer for, for whoever's in that ambulance traveling somewhere. I think that's pr probably a pretty good thing. But where's your heart at? Do you have a, a, an open heart or, or a closed heart? A closed heart is, I would say, unmoved by need, perhaps blind to it. Uh, they, they don't even hear the ambulance. They don't even see the need, or, or they're judgmental. You know, I wonder if the priest or the Levite actually kind of looked down on this victim on the road like he shouldn't have been in this neighborhood. How ironic is that? They're walking by. But 
I wonder if they were kind of pointing a finger somehow at this, this guy on the road. You got yourself into this mess? You can get yourself out, right? I, I know a lot of people who, when they think of people who are in poverty in our country, they kind of think it's their fault. And, and sometimes there's truth in some situations, but we should never be, have that kind of judgment that we're placing on people who are poor. An open heart. A person with an open heart sees need and is moved by compassion. God has an open heart. Countless scriptures tell us that the Lord our God is gracious and compassionate. God is never, never, never unmoved by need. He has that large heart of compassion. I, I met recently, uh, just a few weeks back, for coffee with one of our Coquitlam City Councilors. And uh, he wanted to talk to me about housing affordability in our city. And so we're sat, sitting down over coffee, and he's, he's describing the dilemma that's happened right now in our community as they build the Evergreen SkyTrain line, that as they, they put that into a neighborhood, what that does is, is the housing prices in that neighborhood begin to go up. It becomes desirable to live close to a SkyTrain. Well, it turns out that the corridor uh, uh, the SkyTrain is going through on Clark Road, they're paves right through one of the lowest income neighborhoods in Coquitlam. So you got the Coquitlam and the Cottonwood Corridor there that what new Canadians live there and, and, and seniors on fixed incomes and, and young families who can't afford to live anywhere else in our city. And, and, and prices now will go up. They'll, they'll, they'll tear down these apartments that are there and they'll be, build these expensive condos that are really desirable. And where do those people go? And let me tell you this. The city councilor is telling me all these things in tears are rolling down his cheek as he's telling me that he doesn't think it's tolerable, that we think it's totally okay that, that our senior citizens and, and people who are poor move out to Mission, because that's where you can afford to live in a place. He, 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 he was broken up about it, choked up about it. This guy, I, I, I know a, a little of his story, and, and he's kind of a lapsed Catholic, but just as recently kind of had a resurgent of faith. But I'll tell you this, I think he had an open heart. That's what I would say. And he convicted me. I, I, know, I know far too many Christians who could, who could give a rip about those kind of things. How can we gain an open heart? Well, if we need the leadership of the Holy Spirit to actually see opportunities, I would believe we need the power of the Holy Spirit to actually experience mercy. We need to ask God for mercy. If you do even a, a little bit of a heart check and you find you've got more of a closed heart than an open heart, uh, I think Jesus would say repent. I'd say, I'd say confess your sin and, and ask God for help. And, 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 and probably the best good you could do today is say, God, um, you know, change my heart. Transform me into a person who would love those who are in, and, and be moved by compassion for those who are in need. Um, Jesus said in John, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a picture of mercy. So ask the Holy Spirit to make you merciful. Finally, fourth point. Aim for the good instead of the great. The story is known as the Good Samaritan, not as the Great Samaritan. I think there's an important distinction. Um, Ten years or so ago, uh, a book came out called From Good to Great uh, by Jim Collins. It's actually a very interesting book. Uh, and what they did was they looked at Fortune 500 companies that had gone from being kind of 
fairly average companies or decent good companies and then and transformed into great companies where, where they just excelled in all kinds of ways and and people paid attention to this the, these companies that made this transformation from good to great and people were following what these companies did and trying to practice those kind of things and uh, a very fascinating thing and I appreciate the content of that book I, I think there's some great ideas there but I think for followers of Christ it should be from great to good think, think from God's perspective trying to be great isn't good enough in, in his eyes the, the, the greatest thing can be has more to do with goodness than with greatness Micah 6 8 kind of sheds light on this tells us God's idea of good he has shown you O oh man what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God do you love mercy because the good life is not marked by a life of success with all the trappings but a life marked by mercy and compassion and justice you can have all the success in the world and it, and it would be meaningless and void without mercy we need a new criterion when you want to judge the kind of day you had perhaps you, you need to reflect on whether you have been merciful to the people you encountered that day or not I, I've said this before in terms of measuring the success of our church that we, we needed a different criterion than, than we've had in the past See, it's easy to dream of, of a great church or, or a together church, a church with programs for every, every need and every age, a um, church with no financial challenges, never a need for a catch-up offering, well-organized, everything is running smoothly, services ending on time, no mistakes. Wouldn't that be good? I mean, people might actually call us a great church. Uh, I like uh, how uh, one pastor put it. He, he, he filled out this thing that said, another month, another month ends, all targets met, all systems working, all the congregation satisfied, all staff eager and enthusiastic, all pigs fed and ready to fly. I think God would say, don't be a great church. Be a good church. Be a church where love is the highest value, where mercy and compassion is practiced. Our success as a church is not based on the slickness of our services, uh, the decor of our building, the quality of our music, or even on the eloquence of the preacher. Good luck with that. The success is based on the compassionate hearts of our people. My son was telling me this week, uh, he was playing Madden on his uh, computer game, and uh, that's NFL, and he said, Dad, check out this guy with this interesting name, this NFL player. His name is Merciless. Whitney Merciless. I, I, that was hilarious. He's a, he plays for the Tex Houston, Houston Texans. And, and my response, pretty okay for a, you know, NFL football tackler to be called Merciless. I think it's probably, it's probably a fitting name. Like, you, you, at first you might be willing to pick on the kid because he's called Whitney, but then you hear his last name, you're like, I'm not picking on you, man. It's not okay for the Christian to be called that. We should never be called that. We're to be defined by our love and our mercy for the world. So let's agree together as a church. Let's not get sidetracked by, by greatness. Let's go for the good. That's the goal. Let's ask God to change our hearts and, and, and do a new work, making us into a merciful people who just surprise, surprise, by God's grace, might allow us to change the world.
We're going to now have an opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper, this, this great feast uh, where we remember the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, I struck this morning uh, how the story of the Good Samaritan isn't that different from what God has done in Jesus. Only we were the victim on the road, right? We were the, the one broken and beat up and stripped and uh, in need. Only God did not walk by. He sent his son, his very only begotten. But here's where there's a, a twist in the story. He, he didn't simply band-aid our wounds and, and, and take us to an end. He gave up himself. He actually subjected himself to the worst treatment that human, humankind could do to him. He was beaten and stripped and nailed to a tree. And he would not be pulled down from that tree until he was dead. Isaiah 53 reminds us. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To rescue us, Jesus put himself on that road in our place. And, and I'd ask this, this morning, where are you on that road this morning? Um, Graham spoke last Sunday about chaos and how... Uh, Oftentimes, uh, life throws some chaotic curves. I mean, the interruption for you might not have been somebody coming over for coffee. It might have been bad news from a doctor or a, 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 a harsh word from your spouse, uh, a relationship that's, that's turned south, a work issue that's, that's challenging, a finance problem, all those kind of things. And I, I want to say this morning, Jesus wants to meet you wherever you are. I love the, the verbs that when, when Jesus uh, talks about inviting his disciples to this feast, to the, the cup and the bread. It, it, it's, all, it's all an invitation. It says he gave bread, uh, eat, drink. It's actually not about do. It's actually done. He did it all. It is done. And that day it was, it was finished. It is finished. He did the, the he, he did the hardest thing, and now we can come to him and participate in this meal. And, and uh, every once in a while, we have our elders and, and some of our prayer team come up and and, and uh, are available to pray. And I, I I'd encourage you this morning, wherever you are on the road this morning, whatever place of need you might have, God is not unmoved by your need. God is not unmoved by your your pain, and He would love to. To connect with you this morning over that, I, I think, and, and, and as Graham said last week, in, in those places of chaos, sometimes we can meet God himself. So I encourage our, our, our um, elders, prayer team are going to come up in a minute, and as you partake, you can actually kind of take a side little path and receive prayer. And I would encourage you to do that. If you have a need this morning, bring it to God in prayer uh, with, with the help of some friends. Um, so we're going to...
partake of this fantastic feast in a moment, but let me read this from 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 